5 in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello and welcome. It's that time of the week again. Friday morning, the perfect moment to look back and reflect on five of the news stories that have caught our eye. I'm Phil Woodford in London, and yes, you're listening to Colourful Radio. It's five in the eye. This is episode 0296. Joining Phil by Zoom this week, it's me, Mike Lohituru, and I'm delighted to welcome another guest to the show. Radio listeners will remember him from his appearance in 2020. It's an old friend of the show, Suki Randawa. Hi there, Suki. Hi, Michael. Hi, Phil. And it's great to be back on Five in the Eye. And I can reveal our top story this week is going to, go, going to be the departure of controversial TV host Piers Morgan from Good Morning Britain, following his comments about Meghan Markle and the spat with a fellow presenter, Alex Beresford. Five in the Eye. And for our second story, it's former Stone Roses frontman Ian Brown and his opposition to COVID vaccinations. He's pulled out of the neighbourhood weekend of festival because he said that fans were... I have to show that they've had a jab. What's story number three this week? Well, how much would you pay for one of my tweets? (laughs) Phil. (laughs) Someone has stumped up two and a half million dollars for Twitter founder Jack Dorsey's first ever message on the platform. It's all made possible by blockchain technology. For our fourth story, we discussed the Japanese millionaire who wants to fly us to the moon. Well, eight of us to be, to be more precise. And finally this week, to wrap up the show, President Joe Biden's rescue dogs have been sent packing from the White House after one of them turned nasty. <laughs> I've heard of political attack dogs, but this is ridiculous. And that's this week's Five in the Eye in the eye. Okay, well, we're going to start the show this week with uh, the surrounding Piers Morgan, um, the controversial host up until um, a few days ago on ITV. And he had been much criticised for his commentary on the uh, interview given to Oprah Winfrey by uh, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan. And um, after he'd viewed it on uh, American TV, he launched a withering attack saying that he didn't believe anything Meghan Markle had said. And that attracted 41,000 complaints to Ofcom. The next morning, he was on the show again and uh, co-presenter Alex Beresford challenged Piers Morgan over his views, at which point Morgan decided he had enough and flounced out of the studio, returned later on, but the damage was done. He looked like a complete idiot. And um, ITV and he parted company. Suki, what did you make of this spat? What does it say about Mr. Morgan? And does it tell us anything um, beyond that about the the state of British broadcasting um, and its relationship to these, you know, really tense issues of monarchy? See, my personal opinion is that when he was on the show bef- the day before he walked away uh, from the stage, he'd already made some comments about Meghan Markle. And I, I think uh, he probably had had words with his superiors after that uh, morning session because they probably weren't too happy. And so my personal kind of belief is that, that yesterday when he walked off the stage, it was pre-planned. Um, he had said something that he couldn't retract. Uh, his comments around not believing Meghan Markle 
essentially meant that he didn't believe what she was saying about her mental health and the problems she was going through. And that's quite a sensitive topic. And um, if you can imagine people out there who are listening now who potentially have mental health issues, and it's a difficult subject to open up to anyone, but when someone uh, of the caliber of Meghan Markle, who, uh, Meghan Markle, who's you know in the public eye, opens up, and a well-known journalist basically closes her down, I think it creates an environment where other people who may want to open up about this are basically thinking, well, if she can't be heard, then how will I be heard? So that's my kind of uh, analysis on this. I think it's a sensitive type subject that he he should have modulated his 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 feedback, his thoughts on this because it affects a lot of people. So I think he is. Piers is part of a group of young men, not young men, men now, who have just, to my mind, lost the plot in terms of their their ability to express their opinions in the most aggressive and unfeeling way. I'm looking at Lawrence Fox. You know, I'm thinking of the fact that he, he, he's, he, he, dissed, he dissed people for being woke. And then lo and behold, Piers starts talking about, you know, criticizing people for being woke, talking about cancel culture. You know, they, they, they've eliminated from the show. Did he? he wasn't canceled. He eliminated himself. Yeah. These, people have, these people have a, a, a personality complex. I'm sorry, they do, in the sense that they think the world is against them in the sense that they're expressing their opinions and they're not allowed to express their opinions. Yes, you are, but at the same time, you have to be respectful. To your point, to your point, um, Suki, the idea of dissing someone who's expressing mental, you know, issues with their mental health. You know, you say, they're saying, you know, I don't believe you. Hello, what does it take you to believe me? So I think it's totally out of order. And for me, we're, 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 um, Morgan and Fox and Trump, whenever they're challenged, they have no answer. And I was, you know, I have to call, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use their language, snowflakes. Mm-hmm. Snowflakes, because he fell apart. He, he was he was challenged by, um, by and, and, and no disrespect to, to, to Alex Beresford, but by a, weather, a weatherman mm-hmm. critiqued him and he fell apart. Snowflake or what? It's, I mean, maybe maybe I'm cynical, Michael. I mean, I, I think Piers Morgan is just publicity hungry um, at every stage of his life. He does whatever it takes to draw attention to himself effectively. I mean, we've seen in recent years, haven't we? Um, he threw his weight behind President Trump um, and, and, and was, was a pal of Trump until probably pretty much the 11th hour, at which point he did a, an about and decided he wasn't a fan of Trump at all. Opinions. I, I would see his kind of, um, his storming out of the most something that he pre-planned. I mean, in order to generate more headlines about Mr. Piers Morgan. And, um, you know, isn't, isn't it true that he's got work ahead of him somewhere or other with on one of these new opinion channels that yeah, are coming up or, yeah. or something? Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't believe it's going to do any harm, really. No, absolutely. I, 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 think, I think you're right in terms of he's such a self-publicist. But more for me, it's what it says about who we are, that we're actually recording, we're reporting this man's words. You know, and I feel in some ways he, he's bring, he brings journalism down. 
Because I think opinion and what we do here on Five Night is really important. But it's, you've got a difference between opinion and news. And I think what he does, he conflates the two. He thinks he's news. But apart from the, his kind of monologues that he goes into about various subjects, um, I do think over the last year he's had some um, interesting moments where he's interviewed the likes of you know, Matt Hancock around you know, PPE contracts and um, you know, what the government's doing around COVID. And I think a lot of people did appreciate that type of journalism where he's been putting politicians and people uh, on the spot. Uh, where we don't see that type of type of journalism anywhere anywhere else. So you know, I think he's he, he is an individual. I cannot say he, you know I dislike him one hundred percent in terms of how he does things and the way he conducts himself. Uh, because on, but on this particular matter, definitely, I completely disagree with his outbursts and how he's uh, portrayed. Um, you know, the health issues that Meghan Markle has been uh, bringing up. But I think conversely, some of these other interviews he's done with some other individuals, I would suggest they are have been a, a breath of fresh air. Oh, so you think so to be a thug, to beat up a minister, you know, on TV. You know, I know politicians will be beaten up, but you've got to have some levels, some levels of debate, rather than just debate in the gutter and just beat people up, which he did. But debate, well, I mean, come on, Michael. No, I, th- I think I think Suki's Suki's point is, uh, you know, the Johnson government gets away with a lot of stuff, doesn't it? And a lot of people feel quite frustrated that uh, some of the some of the stuff that's gone on during the pandemic, in terms of the number of people who've died, the cronyism with all the contracts and so on, yeah. they never really get held to account. No, no, but, but, I, no, 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 but the way he beats, it's just aggressive. It's, I stop listening. I don't listen to ITV. I, just, um, I never listen to it. I just find it oh, just not for my ear. And the same John Humphreys on 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 um, on, um, on Radio Four and today, that aggressive journalism for me, it's just old school. It's just old school. Now I know that at the same time you can't say hello, Mister Minister. What do you want to say to us today? Yeah, of course you can't just open the door, and let them speak. But at the same time. We've got to have an, a, a debate, not just a, a, a haranguing match where you beat people up. Now, you're going to say to me, our politicians are so smooth now, they've got to be beaten up. Well, I would argue, it's at the end of the day, this is entertainment. It's inform, information, but inf- infotainment. You've got to get the balance right. I don't, like, I don't like people being beaten up on air. At the same time, I want the news to be exposed. That's the, that's what that's what broadcasters or interviews need to do. But but Michael, aren't there all kinds of interviews and all kinds of interviewers? Look at look at Oprah. I mean, o- Oprah has uh, you know tactfully and sensitively opened up a lot of delicate issues with Harry and Meghan. There's no question though. It was it's not exactly a challenging environment for them, and it's one in which they feel quite comfortable going into the interview because everyone, you know, if you, if their people and her people have all spoken in advance, no doubt, and everyone kind of knows the parameters of what they're trying to achieve with the interview. That is one genre of interview, and it brings a certain thing out. Um, Piers Morgan has a different style. It's combative. Uh, it's very, very different, but it it, 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 was, it brings different results. I mean, what, what do you feel, Suki? Well, I'm a voting member of the public, right? And I expect specific answers 
to specific questions, especially as you said, Phil, when we're talking about cronyism or uh, not being not doing the job of protecting the people of this country when you know when when you know thousands of people are dying, you know every 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 week or every month, and when you when a minister is asked a question, and that minister is in control of that portfolio, and they don't give the answers that we expect as voters of the voting public, what does what should a journalist do? The journalist should ask those questions in a borderline aggressive manner if they need to, but they need to get those answers. Because generally speaking, you know how politicians answer questions. They don't. And I think Piers Morgan did have something in his toolbox uh, that a lot of other journalists don't have. And sure, he has been aggressive, but I think for me, number one, it has been entertaining. And number two, I'd, I really did like to see these politicians put on the spot and being asked these difficult questions and pushed hard to give the answers. I think it's time to move on now to story number two. Five in the eye. Story number two. Well, story number two. This is a story about um, the, 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 the Stone Roses frontman, Ian Brown. And he's pulled out of a music festival over COVID vaccinations. Because the, the, the organizers said you need the vaccination, you need to be vaccinated to come to the um to come into the, the show. And it is a anti-vaxxer. And this this I can't tell you how this saddens me. This really saddens me in the sense that you know it's distilled down. The catchphrase is no jab, no job. And I have to say, you know, I'm gonna be up front here, Suki Phil. I agree with that. You know, in the sense of I want to go to a festival. And know that it's going to be a safe environment or as safe as possible. But the people around me have, have been vaccinated or I've got the masks on. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it's going to be, it's, it's not going to be perfect. We know that. You can't 100%, 100%. We've taken enough measures to make sure we're going to be safe. And this, for him to say, I'm, I'm going to pull out now because it's not right. I'm sorry, Phil, Suki. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know, well, I mean, you know, I would take it that it's his loss. I mean, if he doesn't want to, uh, if he doesn't want to appear, well, um, he's he's the one losing out. I'm not sure how desperate. I mean, the Stone Roses were big in the '90s, weren't they? I'm not sure how desperate many people are to to see him today. Perhaps perhaps he's got a loyal fan base, but there'll be other places perhaps where they can they can they can see him. I think this this business of um, proving you've had the vaccine is going to be a big thing in the coming months without a shadow of a doubt we're going to uh have to be able to demonstrate for a, a degree of protection to others because it's becoming increasingly apparent both with the pfizer vaccine and the astrazeneca vaccine that not only does the vaccine protect you from getting seriously ill but it also reduces transmission mainly. so if i've had the vaccine safer as a result knowing that i've that i've had it and i think it's reasonable for people to prove it no absolutely so what's the end objective here um the end, end objective for all of us is to make sure that we stop the virus circulating and mutating right how do we do that i don't think and i don't believe we can we should force people to uh, be vaccinated. It's a choice. It should stay a choice. Um, 
but that when it comes to specific uh, institutions um, or places where there may be gatherings, so I'm going to make a, I'm going to make an analogy here. Back in the day when I used to go to nightclubs, there was a entrance policy, right? You had to wear shoes and you had to wear a shirt. No trainers. Was that discriminatory? No, not at all. So what if nightclubs now and pubs and restaurants said, okay, you have to show us proof that you've been vaccinated because we want to make sure that we keep our public and keep our customers safe. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask. And if you think about it, there are companies out there already who have already instigated this. Like I've read Qantas will not allow you to fly unless you've been vaccinated. Cruises, the very few that are kind of still in operation, are expecting that as well. But I think there'll come a point in time, probably after summer, if we find there is a large minority of people who haven't been vaccinated and the, vac- and, and the, vac- and the virus is uh, spinning out of control again, then we may need to reassess this again. And at that point in time, we may need to cajole, mm-hmm. persuade, reassure, incentivize people to take the vaccine or, from the group uh, that may have not taken it initially. Suki, I'm a bit tougher. You gotta get, if your business, like Pimlico plumbers or care home providers, provides on, depends, or pro, depends on providing services to the community and predominantly the older members of the community, then you want to make sure that your workers, your carers, are, are not going to infect your customers. But at the same time, your, your employees want to know they're, not, they're, they're going to be protected if, they're, if, they're, if the people they're visiting are infected. So it makes perfect sense, perfect sense from a security point of view on both sides, from a health security point of view, for for, the, for that person to be vaccinated. I would feel well comfortable knowing that the person coming to fix my, uh, my my leaking tap has been vaccinated. He's wearing glass, he's wearing the the, the, the mask, he's doing all the right things, and he's vaccinated. It's all about that 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 that, that uh, health security we need. So no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm. Let me be upfront. No jab, no job. You know, it's it, it's as simple as that. What, what about what about the arguments that this could potentially be discriminatory? I mean, for, first of all, for instance, we're prioritising older people. Country where someone like Michael has his green flag ticket to say that he can go out clubbing. And- Every night, um, but his uh, his what I mean. Um, the we've we've then got the issue also that um, different countries will be at different stages of, uh, of of vaccination. Now we know that countries in the developing world, for instance, are lagging a long way behind. They don't have sources of of uh, countries like the UK, and they're relying very much on having uh, vaccines given to them under the COVAX program. I mean, are we going to be saying? over the coming year oh if you live in um a a g7 country or a very wealthy country you're free to travel wherever you want around the world but i'm sorry if you live in a poor country and you've got uh, no vaccination program you're a second class citizen you can't travel Mm, absolutely so i've got a question for you michael let's say for argument's sake i don't want to be vaccinated okay that's not my position but for argument's sake would you support the my forceful vac- vaccination? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not for. I'm not, not. Not at all. Not at all. 
Well, I look at it a different way. Look at this way. And, and, and a, it's a rather crude, but I think it's a very telling analogy. Blackout during the war. We were all told to close our curtains. Now, would you have your curtains open during a bombing raid? You know, we're part of a community here. And being part of a community, there's some responsibilities. Michael remembers the ARP war knocking on the door. <laughs> I can hear him now or hear now. So it's that sense of, you know, we're a community here and we want to work together. We respect and value each other. And part of that is I want to protect you. And me having the vaccine, being vaccinated, protects you. Just as you're vaccinated, protect me. Like, I, I like the, what's the expression they say about um, how you should behave in the pandemic? Act as though you've got it. Yeah. Act as though you've got it. So it's that sense of we've got to be sensitive to each other. And those, for me, those people who, who are uh, anti-vaccine or, or don't want to be vaccinated are not thinking in terms of how they fit into this greater thing, which is us, this community. So that's where I said earlier on, that's where this comes in, the education part, the persuading, the showing the benefits, the uh, showing people that we are a community and what we do as individuals affect the wider community. Uh, because I think, you know, that is very important. And... And hopefully we can, on an individual basis, take that message out into our communities, as well as use government communication mouthpiece to do that as well. No, I'm with you 100% there, Suki. The challenge is this disinformation. So mm. much disinformation around. And for me, it's that I, I, I urge people to think about who we are collectively, how we interact with each other. That's who we are. And we want to protect the body that is us. And part of that is just being vaccinated. Yeah, and I've said before, we have, um, we've got vaccines, for instance, like, like uh, measles, mumps and rubella. Um, most people wouldn't be sick from rubella, but pregnant women get very ill. We have the vaccine to keep pregnant women safe. Yeah. And that is the principle behind vaccination programs. And I, I completely agree with both you guys. Well, we, we've gone from uh, complete, uh, uh, complete agreement to a story which maybe will cause some controversy. Story number three. Five in the eye. Suki, tell us about this and please explain it in a language I can okay, understand. So Jack Dorsey is the CEO of Twitter. And I'm sure we all are familiar with Twitter. What he's done is he's taken his first ever tweet and he's created an NFT, a non-fungible token. Fungible. Fungible. Right. So let me explain what fungible means. So if you had a pound coin, Phil, and I had a pound coin, and we exchanged our pound coins, we'd still have a pound coin each. It wouldn't be the same pound coin, but we'd still have a, a pound coin each, meaning those pound coins are interchangeable, meaning they are fungible. Okay. But with a non-fungible token, this digital token, not a physical token, they cannot be interchanged, meaning that when you hold this digital token, it's yours and it shows authenticity of, of to, what, to whatever thing it's attached to. Okay, so are you with me so far? <laughs> sort of, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, with I you. Think, I, think, I think I've got that, yeah. Okay, so I've got a quid, haven't I? Is that right? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's what you're going to get from me. So let me explain it in terms of Jack Dorsey's Twitter. So his first ever Twitter. 
he's got this at, and he's attached this to a non-fungible token. All that means is he's got a digital certificate, a bunch of numbers that says that this is the authentic, this is an authentic tweet, right? The original tweet. So now, therefore, what he's able to do is he's able to, number one, sit in his armchair at home and say, wow, you know, I've got the first ever tweet and just feel good about it. But secondly, he can sell it. If it's got value, he can sell it to someone else. And he's he's actually put it on the market. And I think the latest uh, bid he got was about 2.5 million for a digital tweet, right? So if, I, if you give me another 30 seconds, I'll explain it in another way. Think about uh, that classic Marilyn Monroe picture of she's, she's standing over a, a grate, uh, a subway grate, and a, and a white uh, dress flies up. We remember that, don't we? Yeah. Now, I think it's uh, Sam Shaw was the photographer. Let's assume Sam Shaw, I don't know if he's still alive, probably he's not. He, he or his family have that original physical photo, right? So that's an authentic original photo that was taken of Marilyn Monroe. But then what's, what his family could do is they could take a digital copy of that photo, attach it to, uh, to an NFT, make it into a non-fungible token, and sell that as an original online. So in other words, what he's got is a physical authentic, authentic photo, and also a digital one. And no, whether you have a picture of Marilyn Monroe on your walls, um, Michael or Phil, I know thousands of people have got that same picture, but they don't have that authentic, non-fungible token linked, uh, authentic photo, digital photo. So, so you know, this, this NFT, this non-fungible thing you talk about, yeah. it's not a physical thing, it's a digital thing. It's all digital. So this is what I can't, you know, this is what I find compelling about this. This in terms of that, that, that has no substance. Like that photograph has some substance. That tweet, I can get a JPEG of that tweet. Yeah, exactly. I agree with Michael on this. I mean, what is the tweet exactly that he is protecting and certificating through this NFT? Because um, to, to me, it's just um, something visual that appears on a screen. And I can't really see how anyone would know that, um, that, that, that it had any kind of substance to it at all. I mean, because I, I, we, we could reproduce it quite yeah. easily. I could copy it. I could have a screen grab of it. Um, but, but Phil, so, could you uh, sell it? Phil, could you sell it? Could you sell it for 2.5 million? That's the question. I, I, I guess I guess the point is that 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 that, that NFT yeah. kind of trashes all the JPEG copies of that tweet. You, you got the magic version of it. You got the you magic version, it. the only version. And, and, and what, about, what about in positions where, where Suki, when 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 art, because artists might use this, mightn't they, for music or for for uh, for paintings and this this kind of thing? I mean. Does it extend to the idea of kind of limited editions? So yes. I uh, I decide that the, yeah, there's going to be 250 of these things or a thousands of the uh, of these mm. things and no more. Yeah. So the Kings of Leon, a band, they've actually uh, they actually sold a specific limited edition, I think, uh, version of their album with a whole bunch of other kind of value adds around it. That particular NFT attached to that specific cover, uh, album cover, and an album is authentic and has been purchased by one individual person. Although you, me, Phil, uh, Phil, you, me, and Michael could go on Spotify or Apple Music, still listen to the same music, 
but they've got the authentic uh, original certified um, piece of work from the, from from Kings of Leon. So I, I guess in some respects, what we're talking about is we're so used to living in the physical world. We used to have record collections. Some of us moved on to CDs, right? Then we moved on to digital music. But I think it's the next step now, having something digital, but something that you can buy and only you have, even though other people potentially can replicate what you have, but they can't own it and sell it. You know, the challenge I have with you, I, I, I think this is a fantastic technology. Fantastic. One of the things I love about it is that you can put a slice of yourself in there. What do I mean by that? A percentage when it's resold. You can you can put a 10%, 20%. If that if the NFT, the original artist, can say, I'm going to get 10% of that in perpetuity. And you can leave that to your answer, to, your answer, to people to come. So now I'm convinced. I'm, I'm, I'm really convinced on the technology. My challenge is what Phil alluded to, this idea of we're so used to something physical, something you can nail to the wall. This is it. This is mine. Where's this idea of this digital thing, which other people can copy and time again, it's just, I'm challenged by. Like, the only thing I can really think about trying to understand it is this, this concept of provenance. Who owns it? Who owned the object? And that's, many art objects take their value in provenance. You know, it was owned by David Bowie. It was owned by Mick Jagger. It was owned by um, the Prince of Wales. The, the, person, the, the person who owned it gives it value. So I sense that this NFT is giving value because it's an NFT and it's owned by so-and-so. And then we can see that momentum growing, that, that provenance, because there's a, a track record of ownership. It, 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 stri- it strikes me as kind of a marketplace where, um, you know, if, if, if the bubble is sustained, uh, the sky's the limit. It's a bit like tulips in the 17th century or whatever, you know. Um, if if eventually someone decides, well, actually, I can listen to Kings and Leon on Spotify and I'm not prepared to pay for this NFT version of it and I don't particularly care, uh, that the bubble bursts, doesn't it? And um, it, it's it's just dependent purely on psychology as far no, as... No, Phil, no, can I just say that bubble bursts... Am, na- am I being naive about no, 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 Of course you've been naive. Phil, that's your normal position. <laughs> no, seriously. In terms of the the the, the, the kings of Leon bubble conversed, but there are and many other models. There are many other objects, digital in terms of music, in terms of art, in terms of poetry that be, that can be, can be made NFT, and people will want them. The idea of ownership, that kind of the idea of association, to be part of it. You know, it's, it's, it's really something that people value and then they'll, they'll pay for that. So no, Phil, I, I think this idea of a South Sea bubble, I, I think in, in a, a particular product, it can happen. It will happen. It will happen. You know, the, the artists come and go. Their fame waxes and wanes. Their NFT price will, will go accordingly. But the, the idea of the NFT, I think that's fantastic. The idea, just think about this, Phil. Your blog, or your your blogs, you could you could turn each page into an NFT. People could buy a Phil Woodford, here comes the cavalry blog post, the NFT for that. You know, some poor misguided it's a, illiterate it's a, fool. It's a lot. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's a lot, and you you could. Um, 
you know, may, maybe some of your original 78s that you have in your record collection, Michael. <laughs> are you, you talking? Know, you could, are you, you talking, man? Are you talking? If I can digitise them... You could get them converted. Yeah, you could digitise them, yeah. Bring exactly. it on. In, you know, in, in some unique way. But that's all part of it. That kind of uniqueness, that novelty that makes it special. And I think you caught the vision there. So the challenge now is to find where's the new novelty? Where's the new, new, new uniqueness? That people are going to pay for. You know, I suggested it might be Phil Woodford's post from his uh, "Here Come the Cavalry" blog site. I would, you know, I've got to think of my own website, yeah, my own blog post. You know, the Black Presence and Renaissance Europe. I could turn them into NFTs. There's a market there. You, you know, these are all opportunities. Yeah, if you're an influencer, and I don't mean his YouTube type of influencer, any kind of influencer like Phil is in terms of his blog, which I steady, steady the first time. <laughs> yourself in terms of the uh, the art world that you're you, that you walk around in, and um, if you ha- if you have a following, you can definitely create a piece of work, link it to an NFT, and present it to your community and audience, and someone will buy it, depending on how much it is, obviously. Final so, question, Sue, yes, would sir. be, how about, we want to do this NFT, how the hell do you go about it? In 30 seconds, can you tell us how you go about it? Does it cost? Um, I actually was Googling that today earlier on, and I found this video. There are a bunch of websites or platforms out there which give you a step-by-step process uh, <laughs> by which you can um, create an NFT linked to your digital uh, product, your artwork. So uh, if anybody's interested, just go on Google and uh, just search for how do I create an NFT. Five in the eye. Story number four this week. Um, Have you ever fancied flying to the moon? Or who hasn't? Fly me to the moon as the song famously famously went. Um, It's a chance that doesn't come along very often. But there is a a Japanese uh, billionaire called... uh, uh, Yusaku uh, Mezawa, and he made his money in fashion. But, but um, he decided that he was going to send a group of artists up into to space. Maybe um, a trip's going to be launched in 2023. And originally it was going to be artists. But then um, earlier this week, he said, actually, I'm going to open this up to the whole world. Anyone, as long as you've got some great creative idea that you can put into practice somehow or other when you go up in this uh, rocket ship uh, then, then you're a contender i imagine there'll be quite a lot of applications for this michael are you uh, are you signing up I've, 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 boom, boom, I've signed up already i'm in there you know india is number one america's number two britain's number four france is down way down so i'm up there with brits we just want to get to the moon come on the chance of going to the moon having said that if i win you know, have I got the guts? <laughs> I don't know to get to that. To get that, sitting on top of that rocket. In fact, it's a bomb. Sitting on top of a bomb. No, but having said that, no, I think this is fantastic, Phil. Fantastic. And gotta say, Suki, thank you for suggesting this because it's about vision, the future, possibilities. Because he talks about people who want to expand the horizon, want to expand how they interact with the world, and they want to work, work cooperatively. So uh, th- this is, uh, you know, top, top man. I've total respect for him. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if I make it through to the next round. I've signed up. Suki, come on. You've not, 
You've Michael, not signed up, have you? Michael. This Michael, is your story and you've Michael, not signed I up. I love this story, right? I, and you've have you signed up? Take, I have signed up. I actually have signed up. <laughs> and let me prove to you I signed up. I went to dearmoon.earth and I signed up earlier on this morning and I was going to come on this show and I was going to tell everyone, but you've just taken the wind out of it. Oh, no, 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 we're together. <laughs> we'll, we'll, be on the, we'll be there together. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely, I, I absolutely kind of believe exactly what you said in terms of this is about possibilities, right? Now, what if, right? What if? And Phil, we want you to sign up as well. Just think of this, right? The three of us could go on that rocket ship and we could do a, a, a episode of uh, Five in the Eye from the rocket ship. But, no, from, no, sorry, from the other side of the moon. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I could carry on talking about this, but I'm going to ask Phil a question. Phil, have you signed up? If not, when will you sign up? I have to say, I haven't. I think obviously it's something I'd have to ask Mrs. W whether she'd allow me to do first of all. Oh, because, come you know, on, she might not be too. She, she, she might not be too keen on me popping off to the moon because um, I've got so many responsibilities in the home. Um, I'd also have to check with all my clients that they were fine with me kind of running my training <laughs> courses from the moon. Um, but if provided that. Provided that was the case, had a good enough Wi-Fi connection, then then yeah, I'll be up for I'll be up for it. How long would we be up there, Suki? Uh, do 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 we know the duration of this trip? And are there any planned stop-offs? You know, a little chef or anything like that along the way? Oh my God! No, Phil, I'm going to be rude and interrupt. Four days there, four days back. No, Phil, it does, the fact that we're going to the moon—that's that's enough. There's no stop-offs. You know, there's going to be. Fantastic. The idea of looking back, we can see Earth rise from the moon. And, you know, I love this. When I first saw this story, Suki, I thought, uh-uh, this is, a, this is a billionaire showing off. But no, this is a visionary man. And him and, and Elon Musk, they're showing about possibilities. You know, the fact that, why not? But, but also, why opening, not? It, opening it up to the general public. Like, forget about you and me, Michael, right? Yeah. Think well, about forget about you. Forget about you. Forget about me, right? <laughs> think, think about a, some some young girl or boy, right, in London, possibly, you know, between the ages of 18 to 25, or whatever, right, who gets an opportunity to go to the moon. How would that change their life? That would oh. be an amazing no, no, exactly. No, no. This is, this is a, you know, this is a, this is a billionaire doing something good. Yeah, and he made his money legally <laughs> through business, by the way, Michael. Well, well, as far as we know, you know, I've often, you know, I've often, I don't know if I've said this on Five in the Eye, you don't make a billion without breaking a few eggs. Yeah, sure. Uh, those 18 to 24-year-olds, uh, those 18 to 24-year-olds at the moment, they'd be quite happy if they got to go to a party, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> like it. Oh my God! No, it's, it's a fantastic story. A, you know, we need more. We need more. We need more of this um, of, of these billionaires to put something back. Okay, Mr. Yates. Mr. Yates. Mr. Gates is doing his thing, but he's got enough money. He can get us to the moon as well. He's got. Well, he's the richest man on the planet. But let, now let's focus on our, our Japanese business, bum. Our final story this week. Five in the eye. Our final story. Story number five. It's just a bit of normal news from the White House. And, you know, Phil didn't want to put this on here because he says it's too boring. But look, what it's about, it's about Biden's dogs. Would you believe Biden's dogs 
have bitten some of the people in the White House. And this makes headline news in the Washington Post, the New York Times. I'm thinking to myself, this is so refreshing. After we've had four years of people grabbing people by the inappropriate parts, we've had locking children in, in cages, we've, we've had, we've had you know, so, many, well, so many egregious things happening in terms of them thinking that these are the good people on both sides of the argument where you've got the far right killing people, killing people in, in Charleston. And here we've got just like normal news. Quiet news, a dog biting a man in the White House and the dog is sent home. You know, now we could all, we could all say, every, you know, every dog has one bite and you should, you should give him his due. But I think this is just fantastic that America is now in a good place where this is news rather than some, some well, I, I, the, I the latest that, Trump that, that, outrage. There, there are two aspects of the story that interest me. The first one is that these were rescue dogs. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, they come from, they've had a bit, bit of rough around the edges, you know, not you- the typical kind of thoroughbred pedigree White House kind of dogs. And so it's a sign that maybe, you know, you can take the dog out the street, but, you know, when they get them into the White House, maybe they can't, they can't behave the way that they should. Oh, they didn't you- have the training, the breeding. You're being elitist the, 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 the other thing that I... The, the other thing that, that tickled me about the story was, was the revelation, which I had no idea about, that Donald Trump was the only president in, our, in the last century not to have a dog at the White House. Apparently, it's a, it's, it's a kind of part of the tradition, having hmm. a dog. Suki, what did you make of this? Um, do you think that dogs are a good idea in the White House? Or if they're attacking the staff, presumably, you've got to draw a line somewhere. It said something uh, to the words, the effect of uh, agitated behavior. They were jumping, they were barking, they were ch- you know, charging after star. This, uh, this is normal dog behavior. And uh, that's what dogs do as far as I'm concerned. And I just kind of feel that uh, maybe we're trying to change dogs' natural behavior too much to kind of suit what we think they should be doing. But um, no, as Michael says, it's a it's a mundane, benign, almost dull story, which is uh, a breath of fresh air, I guess, uh, compared to some of the other uh, news we'd be getting. Exactly. Come on. More dog stories. More man bites dog, dog bites man. But did you know, did you know, there is a Twitter account, which is called the first dogs. I saw that. Fantastic. Come on. Listen, Philip, I hate to say this, Phil, Phil, there are dog people just as there are cat people. You know, my, <laughs> my, my, I have to say, my cat Martha has been known to scratch and bite, so she might not get on very much. If she was taken to the White House, she might not behave. I have to. Okay, Phil, here's one for you. Number 10 has a cat. The White House has a dog. Discuss. Well, that's certainly that's certainly one to, to to ponder, Michael. There, the cultural differences between the US and the UK when it comes. One we're probably not going to resolve today, but an interesting issue. You actually conceded my argument there. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for that. Five in the eye. Well, that's it for episode two nine six of Five in the Eye. We hope you enjoyed this barking map. Your writing, Phil, gets better all the time. This Barking Mad episode provided provided you with the kind of bite that you were expecting. Thanks so much for our guest, Suki Randau, for joining us today. 
my pleasure. Hope to be back again at some time, some point in the future. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find Five in the Eye on Facebook, and we post up the stories that have caught our eye on the our page, and it's all oppressed in the news we bring you next week at the same time. For now, this is Phil Woodford in London signing off for another episode. And this is Suki Rendawa saying goodbye and wishing everyone a great weekend. A great week ahead, sorry. <laughs> this is Suki Rendawa saying goodbye and wishing everyone well for the week ahead. Thank you for that, Suki. And this is me, Mike Lohizer, saying, as ever, as always, if you have been, thanks for listening. That's five in the eye, all over, bar the shouting. Well over, including the shouting. See you next time. Goodbye. Five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?